Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Let me invite you to be seated. We're just at the end of our series on the Gospel of John, a series we've entitled Jesus Changes Everything. And as much as we'll be turning um, to other matters shortly, I want to preface that by picking up in John, in John chapter 20, and looking just briefly at how Jesus changes sight. If you have a Bible, uh, you can turn there, if you'd like, again, to John chapter 20, which I'm going to begin by reading. If you were here last week, you'll remember that, that, that through his execution on the cross, uh, Jesus changed the place of death into a place of life. But to do so, he had to die himself, and at the end of that passage, he was placed in a tomb, the place of death, within the garden, the place of life. And that's where the story picks up again in John chapter 20. This is God's word. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He he saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. And then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have lain him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. 
Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the the doors being locked where the disciples were for, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he said this, he he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciple told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we... uh, talk today about exciting things, about what's ahead, I pray we wouldn't forget about what's behind. Not just what you've done in our life, but where that all started, what you've done in Jesus, what you did on the cross, and sealing that by the work of the resurrection. I pray today that as we look at this and what it means for Jesus to change sight, how he changes sight, I pray that we would see ourselves, that we would see him like we've never seen him before, that you would do a work in us for those who've never had that work done, that we would know him for who he is and follow him wherever he goes. I pray you do it for the glory of your son, for the good of our church, amen. Well, the closest I've ever come to witnessing a resurrection was when I was 13 years old. Now, before you get worried or excited, Let me tell you that this was with my pet lizard. Now, my uh, sisters had hamsters. One of them had a guinea pig. I had lizards. Set up a terrarium for them. And I used to watch them. Uh, Inhale, exhale, breathe in, out. And they would would move, right? You would see this happen. And, And I just loved staring with them. But one day, watching them, one of them stopped breathing. And I mean it. He stopped. Dead nothing was going on. And not just for a little while. It was, it was like that, right? He was gone. 
And my little heart broke. It did. It did. I didn't even know what to do. So eventually I reached into this terrarium, got this carcass of a lizard, and I decided that to go, I was going to go from my room to the backyard and bury this poor friend of mine. Well, on the way, I started to think. And I had this budding relationship with God. I, I had come to see Jesus as the, the way, the truth, and the life. I thought, if, if that's who Jesus is, why couldn't he do it now? And so somewhere between my bedroom and the backyard, I started to stroke this lizard. Nothing. Well, eventually, I propped open his mouth. Nothing. Then I got down, and I blew the breath of life into his lungs. And this lizard blew up like a balloon. He was so big. And I squeezed it, and out came the air. And I blew again. And I'm not joking, believe it or not, this lizard started breathing again on its own. And he lived, and eventually I was so happy, and I was thanking God for what I had just witnessed. I released the lizard on the nearest tree I could find. I ran and went and told my mom, and what my mom say is, Jesse, why did you let him go outside? He's going to get eaten by something. <laughs> Closest I've ever come to, to witnessing a resurrection. And I wouldn't believe it. I wouldn't be telling you this if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes. And you don't have to believe it. I'm not expecting you to. But I wouldn't believe it if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes. But it raises an interesting question, a very important question. What about the far more serious claim about the resurrection of Jesus? This isn't something I'm just willing to swallow, see without some substantial evidence. After all, faith isn't belief in the absence of evidence. It's throwing your hat in where the evidence leads. It's faith seeking understanding. It's a willingness to take the journey. But the resurrection of Jesus is something I wasn't there to witness on my own. And neither were you. So if seeing is believing, how can we believe if we weren't there to see? Well, this passage suggests that we see in three ways. That we see the resurrection through its significance. That we see it through its story. And that we see it through the eyes of those who saw it first. That's what we're going to look at this morning. First, seeing that our passage suggests that we see the resurrection through its significance. Now, what does that even mean, to see the resurrection through its significance? What it means is, what do we get if it isn't true? What do we, what do we get if it's true? What do we miss out on if it isn't? And by, by, by this, I mean that we see the resurrection when we see its importance, a hole in life, that only a resurrection from the dead, as, as wild as that may seem, 
only a resurrection from the dead can fill. And we see this in this little race between Peter and that other disciple, the the disciple we only know as the one Jesus loved. So look at the passage. When Peter and this other disciple get word from Mary that Jesus' body is missing, you can see that they they take off for the tomb. And, And the fact that the disciple Jesus loved outruns Peter probably means more than just that he was a little younger may even be connected to the fact that when he gets there, he he doesn't actually go in the tomb. Some have suggested that this disciple had a history with tombs. Some have suggested more than that. But either way, uh, that one, that disciple that Jesus loved, outruns Peter and stoops when he gets there to see the linen clothes lying there. But when Peter comes up, he runs right in and and sees not only the linen clothes, but we read that he also sees the face cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. Not lying with the rest of the clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. And it says in verse 8 that when the other disciple, this other disciple, finally got up the gumption to go in himself, he saw it as well. And that he believed. Why? What was it about this face cloth? That's the thing he sees, right? That's what pushes him to believe. What is it about this face cloth that called for such faith? Was it simply that it was folded up in a place of its own, not lying in the pile with the rest of the clothes? After all, if it it was just a couple grave robbers who had done this, as Mary seems to have supposed, you wouldn't have expected them to, 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 to fold up anything on their way out. You really wouldn't have expected them to undress the guy either. Just saying. But there seems to be something more than that. At the very least, this folded up face cloth would make you wonder. But belief is more than that. Belief is almost an overreaction. Unless this face cloth isn't the first that we've seen. It's a pretty rare word, the one that's used here, that, that, that cloth that was wrapped around the face. It's pretty rare. It's only used a handful of times in the New Testament. Not really used anywhere else all that much. And it's only used once before in the Gospel of John. Do you remember where? It's used when another man who had spent some time in a tomb, a man named Lazarus, the only other one, in fact, in this gospel who's ever described as one Jesus loved. It's used when that man is called by Jesus out of that tomb. And Jesus says to the onlookers, free him, unbind him, let him go, along with the cloth wrapped around his face. So the belief of this disciple here, whoever he was, isn't belief in the absence of evidence, but belief from seeing the resurrection through its significance. That face cloth is what causes the the penny to drop, as it were. It's what connects the dots and allows at least this one disciple to see that the hope of our own resurrection is wrapped up in the resurrection of Jesus. 
that the resurrection even of Lazarus was just the trailer. Jesus' own resurrection is the feature film. And then everything else that we're looking forward to, the resurrection of all his followers, are really just like the spin-offs. Jesus has more spin-offs than Marvel. None of us is able to go back and see the resurrection for ourselves with our own eyes. But we're able to see it through its significance. That in the resurrection of Jesus is wrapped up our hope of resurrection too. A whole that nothing but resurrection from life, from death to life can fill. We can second though see the resurrection through its story. And I'm not talking about the story of the resurrection as it's written out here, as much as I'm, I'm talking about the bigger story of the Bible. Now see, some people want to separate the story of Jesus from the, the story of what came before, the story especially in the Old Testament. But, but that's like trying to understand The Last Jedi without the, the seven movies that preceded it. You can't do it. It, it ruins the beauty of it. It, it ruins the story. But even here we can see that the resurrection is part of something bigger as we look at it through the eyes of Mary. See, when Mary looked into that tomb herself, though no one else apparently saw them, she sees two angels. You can pick up on this idea in a few ways, but this is how I want to do it. She, she sees two angels where Jesus had lain, sitting there. One at the feet and one at the head. And the imagery is significant. Do you know why? Ever wonder why? Why sitting there? I mean, if I was an angel waiting to announce something, I'd be standing at the edge of the tomb, waiting, out of the tomb, on top of the tomb. I actually read of angels on top of the tomb in other scenes, right? You know this. But why sitting inside, one at the feet and one at the head? The imagery is significant. Even if, seeing it, Mary doesn't actually see it. Because the place Jesus had lain had become the ark of God's covenant. The ark was a box in which the Ten Commandments were placed. And it became what was called the, the mercy seat. Where once a year a sacrifice was brought in on behalf of the people for all the sins that nothing else would cover top of that ark, on top of the mercy seat, was sculpted two angels facing one another. And above this mercy seat, it was said that God himself was enthroned. Here the ark is done away with. We see that all it was ever doing was pointing forward to something else. Because here is the mercy seat of God. Here is where the sacrifice was laid. Here is where God himself was enthroned. Between the angels, one at his feet and one at his head. Is that an amazing picture? Everything before was pointing forward to this. And you see it in other ways, too. This, this whole scene is, is actually laden with that. The creation imagery, the first day of the week. Why? 
Why not the Sabbath? That was their holy day. Why not rise on the Sabbath? No, the first day of the week. Because that's when creation began. And that's when recreation started. And in a garden, not the, the dark of day. And Mary actually mistakes him for who? When she turns away from the angels, turns back to Jesus. Who does she think he is? Well, she rightly mistakes him for the gardener. Because he is the gardener. That's what the temple was pointing forward to. The temple was put in place because we were kicked out of the garden in the first place. It's as close as we could get back to the presence of God. But it wasn't the end. It was just one piece in the puzzle that was getting us back there all along. And who does it finally but the gardener himself? This is Jesus. This is the resurrection. It needs to happen. The story couldn't end any other way. It had to happen because we were created for life even though we earned death. But now through his death, that's the poetic justice of God that all rights, all wrongs are made right again. And actually the punishment for what we've done wrong actually becomes the tool for getting us back. We see the resurrection first through its significance. We see the resurrection even though we weren't there. Second, through its place in the story. But lastly, and let's not forget this, that we see the resurrection through the eyes of those who saw it first. And here I just want to end by looking at this guy named Thomas. I don't know what he was doing. Maybe thinking his last bet hadn't gone so good. He was out trying his luck on lottery tickets. But while he's gone, Jesus shows up and announces to the other disciples in this closed room, in this locked room, shows up and announces to them, peace be with you. It's, it's a hugely significant phrase, peace be with you, because that's what all of the Bible is about. Peace, restoration, getting us back to what we once had. Peace be with you. Here it is, and I'm it. And then he goes on to say what? As I was sent by the Father, so I'm sending you to go spread that peace to others. But, but Thomas misses out because he's not there. And even though his ten closest friends see what he demands to see then for himself, where are the nail prints? Where's the piercing in his side? Even though Thomas demands to see that, and his ten friends had seen it, uh, Thomas isn't satisfied. More than that, though, he's not satisfied with the commissioning of these ten that, that through them others would come to believe. So he still refuses to believe based on their testimony. Now, fascinating, as you, as you read on, Jesus eventually shows up again one week later, the next Sabbath day. Jesus eventually shows up again, and Thomas actually gets what Thomas is going after. He actually gets to see, and, 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 and he has this remarkable statement that he makes in the face of that, my, my Lord and my God. It's one of the strongest statements in all of 
the Bible, taking what we see elsewhere, that here is God enthroned himself and, and Jesus saying all along. It's one of the, 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 the clearest, though, proclamations that, that Jesus is who he said he is, my Lord and my God. But Thomas doesn't get what he's going after without these words. This is what Jesus says in verse 29. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Because Thomas should have. In this whole gospel, belief is a slippery thing. Some people, it says they believe, but we, we, we find out shortly after that no one actually believed. The disciples couldn't actually believe. Nobody had the opportunity to believe until Jesus was hanging there on the cross. And then the first one to, to believe the way he, he should have, to believe the way we're called to, is that other disciple who saw the face cloth. Needed nothing else. He didn't even need to see the body yet. He just knew from that, that one symbol that, 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 that connected the dots for him, he knew, right? He was the first one to do it, to, to, to throw his hat in with Jesus even before he had seen it actually worked out. Thomas could have done the same, seeing the signs, understanding the signs, but he didn't. And it's okay. He's, he's welcomed into the fold. And, and, and Jesus knows that. There, there's a dynamic here that, that's understood. His, his apostolic authority rested on the fact that he was going to see this. But there's a sense in which for us there's no place left to play Thomas. There's no place left to be dissatisfied with the evidence we do have. For the resurrection. You see, it's right to withhold faith in the absence of evidence. We're not called ever to place faith without reason. But it's wrong if we withhold faith just because the evidence is not to our liking. And the question today question today is if we're more like Thomas, falling short, not in our demand for the evidence, but in our dissatisfaction with the evidence we have, or whether we see this gospel for what it is, the testimony, as it says at the end, of one who saw and heard, who one, one who was there, who, who tasted and touched who wrote it as a testimony in what he presents as the court case of Christ. That in his own words, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Jesus changes sight. For them, seeing was the key to believing. For us, believing becomes the key to seeing him for who he is. And I want to close by using this idea that we are a community of believers for those who have thrown their hat in with Jesus, who've seen him 
for who he is, a community of Jesus followers, those, those who've, who've become convinced of the testimony of others, like, like the guy who wrote this book. I want to use this as a springboard into talking just briefly about the vision of our church. If you're in your handbook, uh, you'll see opposite the page um, from, uh, that has a place for the sermon notes, you'll see that, that under the title, The Vision of KBC. And I want to share this. This is a digestion of, of, of what we've been talking about as elders. This is where we've come. This is, this is the summary of who we feel we are and who we're going to be. reflecting all the way back on the introspection process, um, all that we've done, uh, the work that we've done as a church. And I want to just read this to you because it's significant not only for what it says, but for what it doesn't say. It's a a course correction in a a way. Maybe better to say we're, we're, we're looking back at the past, celebrating who we've been, and trying to ask who we're gonna be in the years to come. And this is the summary. If you get nothing else, it's this statement. I hope you walk away today with this statement. That Kishwaukee Bible Church is going to be a church of, the, who, of those who are following Jesus by growing Jesus' followers. That is going to be the heart of what we're, we're pushing day in, day out, week in, week out. That our one goal is to grow and grow as Jesus' followers. That's the end game. All the doctrine, all of what we care about, of of what's right and not right, doing what's right and not right, is for this one simple task, to follow Jesus as we grow Jesus' followers. This is the heart of who we're going to be. This is the summation of, of why we exist. And what follows, it it spells that out a little more. And let me just read it for you. We're a community of Jesus followers drawn from all walks of life, from all over the Kishwaukee Valley. Each week we gather together to remind each other of what God's done for us in Jesus and what God's doing through us in the world. We dig into God's word to remember who we're following and to learn better how to follow him in all of life. And we then live that out by loving Jesus, loving Jesus' followers, and loving this world that Jesus loves so much. And let me just point out a couple things, um, because this has implications. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna judge the life of this church um, by who we are, who we're meant to be. So, so let me just spell out some of the implications. First, we're a community of followers, Jesus followers, drawn from all walks of life, from all over the Kishwaukee Valley. That's who we are. That's who we've been. We are not a community church by heart. We're not a church that is doing community things all that much as a concerted kind of this is us, we get together and all 100, 150, 200 of us, we get together on the street and are doing things for the community, in the community, under the banner of KBC. We're not, we're drawn from all over the place. And we don't want people coming from Malta to serve people in Sycamore unless they've got a heart to really do that. 
We want people to be released back into life where you live, where you walk your dogs, where you eat in the park, where you, you, to care for your neighbors, to care for where God's put you. We want to come together to encourage one another, but we want to release people out. And that means that we're not going to do some things other churches do. And that's okay. But if God lays it on your heart to do something that maybe looks like something another church does, that's great too. And we want to support that. We want to uplift that. We want to encourage, equip, and engage in that. But we're not going to do everything. All we want to do is be followers of Jesus who in everything are trying to grow followers of Jesus. Each week at the heart of who we are is a gathering. This gathering, which is about remembering who we are in Christ and who we're following. And then we're going to be pushing more and more into what that looks like, how we can live that out in the rest of life. That's what our time is. As much as we're here to worship God, this is about building each other up. This is about walking alongside one another. I've said this to some of you. You've heard me say this in other contexts. It's interesting in the New Testament when you read about the New Testament church gathering together. You know you never hear about the New Testament church gathering to worship? Is that startling? You never read about the New Testament church gathering for the purpose of worship. Now they're worshiping all over the place. That flows out, and it's not just a Sunday thing. It's serving God in all of life. But they never gather together with that as their central purpose. Do you know why they gather together? Over and over again, they gather for the building up of the body. That's why they come together. And that's what's going to be at the heart of what we do on Sundays. When we get together as a body from start to finish, that's what we're looking to do, to encourage one another in the faith. And then from here, to go back to where we live, to where we work, to where we play, and to follow Jesus as we continue to grow Jesus' followers. In our own walks, in loving Jesus, the walks of those who God's placed under our care, those who we have relationships with, loving Jesus' followers, and then to do that with the world around us, through our lips and through our lives, to grow followers of Jesus. In short, we're following Jesus by growing Jesus' followers. for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.